Last week we started a new series called Red Letters. We're looking at the uh, specific words of Jesus as his disciples recorded them. Uh, and, and then all the different applications that they have for our lives. And there's a wide variety of things that Jesus talked about. Some of it was very direct and confrontational. Other was very uh, encouraging and supportive. Uh, others really challenged sin and called people to repentance. Other people talked about love and mercy and grace. So Jesus had a lot of things to say. And we're taking some of the things that he said over the next uh, couple months and studying them more closely. Now, the reason we're doing that, the reason we always come back to the Word of God, is the Bible says that it's living and active. This is not a, a dead book that was written thousands of years ago that has no relevance or application for our life. It's living and active. It is fully relevant, fully applicational, uh, so important that we can't even understand how important it is for our lives every single day. And, and it's always current. You will always, when you go to Scripture and when you study Scripture, the Spirit will always give you application that's relevant to your life if your heart's open to Him. I've never gone to Scripture and come away thinking, I got nothing out of that. If that's true, either my heart's closed or I haven't spent enough time really soaking in the Word. So the Word is living and active. And then the Bible says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does that mean? It means the Bible's not messing around. It means that as God gives us His Word, that He's not just giving us some nice little thoughts for life that will kind of help us and encourage us and kind of get us on the right path. The Word of God gets right down to the core of what we believe. It gets right down to the core of how we live. And it convicts us, and it challenges us, and it tests our beliefs. That's why a lot of people don't want to spend time on the Word of God, because they know when they open this book, it's going to cut to the core. And a lot of times we don't want to be cut to the core. We just want to hear something that will, that will be positive, that, that we think will just satisfy us. But in being convicted and challenged, it is positive because it's drawing us more toward the Lord. So the Word of God is so important. And this passage in Matthew chapter 18 is, is no different. It teaches us the need to have the correct mindset that pleases the Lord. And it also contains some warning this morning about the spiritual influence that we have on each other. Now, because... Jesus here is talking to disciples. He's challenging them based on what they were doing and talking about. We're going to see that in a moment. And, and the reason that he is this strong in this particular section of Scripture is because their thinking was so misguided. Now, this is late in his ministry. This is late in the three years that he's been uh, walking with them, and they've been learning and becoming his disciples. So you would think at this point they would have already kind of gotten it, but they really don't fully understand until Acts chapter 2. So right now they're having one of these debates that they have, and, and, and this kind of shows how easy it is, even as believers, even as, as children of God, how easy it is for our minds to get off track and for us to start to, to uh, think the wrong things. I think the disciples are well-intentioned at this point. I think they really are trying to, to come to some understanding, but, but the way they're going about it and the way they're reasoning uh, is really just, just wrong. 
And we know that this goes beyond just kind of innocent banter, so to speak, at this point, because the parallel passage of this in Luke chapter 9 says that they had been arguing about it. They were arguing who was the greatest. They were arguing uh, who, who was going to be the most prominent, the most advanced, who, who was uh, Jesus' favorite. My kids always, uh, when, when one of them kind of gets in trouble, <laughs> the other one will come up and go, so I'm the favorite, right? That, that's kind of the debate they're having. Am I the favorite? Oh, I'm the favorite. Come on, John, you're not the favorite. Bartholomew, get, get out of here. Thomas, we all know about you. You're not the favorite. I'm the favorite. And, and it's not just kind of fun and playful. They're actually arguing. They're debating it. They're, they're hostile toward each other in terms of this. And when Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? They, they kind of hide it. So they knew it wasn't right. So let's read what they are saying here and how Jesus responds to it. Because if there's one thing we know about the Lord and about the Word, it directly confronts sin and it makes it clear how God wants us to live as, live as those who are redeemed. So we'll read nine verses here, chapter 18 of Matthew, 1 to 9, and then we'll kind of take it apart quickly and, and have the Spirit apply it to us. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We didn't really see that coming, did we? Woe to the world, verse 7, because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, that conversation took a turn I think the disciples didn't quite expect. Because they're debating who's the greatest, and they're kind of having this, this dialogue and this debate among them. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. He brings a little child in the midst and said, you guys need to become like this. And then he goes into a, a deeper discussion and kind of a more extreme application to it that I think had to catch them off guard. So why does he do that? What's he saying here, both to them and to us, and how do we apply it? Well, let's go back to verse 1 and, and, and start there. Because the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. They're not debating who, has, who is the most spiritually mature, who has the most holy character. What they're debating is who's going to be in the most prominent position. Who's the one that's going to get the most acclaim? See, Jesus has been talking about the fact that his kingdom is heavenly. He's been telling them, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified for your sin. You need to understand this. And the disciples don't get it. They're, they're still thinking of themselves. And they're debating who is, who is going to be the one that people are going to look to and say, that's the guy. Now, we can, we can understand probably the line of thinking. 
Peter is the one who's the most bold and the most courageous. He's always the first in line. He's the one who's most outspoken. So he's probably thinking, well, I'm going to be the advance man. I'm going to be, be Jesus' spokesman. Everybody's going to come to me and, and look to me uh, uh, to give them some wisdom on what's going on with the Lord. John loved the Lord so deeply, he's probably thinking, well, I'm going to be uh, Jesus' right-hand man, his confidant, the, the one who's kind of close to him and that he can rely on when he's, uh, you know, needing something, he can come to me. And then Andrew's probably thinking, well, I was the first one to respond. Jesus called. I was the first one to, to follow him, so he probably has a place of prominence for me because I was the first one to trust. And Judas is thinking, well, I'm the one holding all the money. So Jesus obviously counts on me, no pun intended, to, 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 to hold the money and to be reliable. So uh, I'll probably get some, some advantage out of that, maybe a little, little kickback from Jesus uh, because I'm the one he's relied on to do that. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's thinking in some way, I'm going to be the guy. But Jesus says, no, let me, let me bring you not back down to earth. Let me bring you back up to heaven. You guys are talking about the wrong thing because it's not about your advancement in the kingdom. It's about your humility. And that's why he brings the child into their midst. See, heaven's honor is the opposite of what we think. God doesn't want us to advance and promote ourselves so that we'll be elevated. He says the one that I elevate, we talked about this last week, is the one who's humble. So doing what he normally does, which is using life examples, Jesus calls a little child over. And he brings them into their midst. And he says, let me tell you guys, this is the ideal. Now you've just had grown men arguing, debating, fighting with each other about who gets the higher place in heaven. And Jesus brings this little child and he says, if you guys want to know what your target is, it's right here. It's not to grab a claim. It's not to promote yourself. It's not to talk about your resume or, or, to, or to be seen as being close to me so you're going to get some kind of promotion. No, the way you want to elevate yourself is by becoming like this child. I want you to learn from this child. I want you to understand that this is the way you should think not only in terms of your spiritual perspective but in terms of how you treat other people. Now, before we look at the second part of that, because that's really the main thrust of our study, look back at the text because Jesus said there are four ways in which you need to become like a child. And it starts with conversion. Unless you be converted, unless you become like a child and trust in me, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. See, there's no way to be accepted by the Lord. There's no way to be a citizen of his kingdom unless we first completely confess our absolute spiritual failure and our inability to save ourselves. If a person is not willing to do that, they will never be saved. See, the pride of man's heart is so strong, and our arrogance is so strong, and we think we don't need a Savior. Mankind, by and large this morning, rejects the thought of a Savior. If you look throughout the world, 7 billion people, however many people are, 6.5 billion people, the vast majority of people, the overwhelming majority of people this morning do not believe that they need a Savior, and they certainly do not believe that they need Jesus Christ to be their Savior. So they reject it. 
Man's heart is sinful and deceitfully wicked. And it's only when we come to the place of becoming like a child and saying, I've got to confess my failure. I can't hide from it anymore. I can't deny it anymore. I have to admit that I am a failure spiritually and I need Jesus to save me and forgive me and deliver me. Self-sufficiency and salvation don't go together. They're at complete odds. So it's only when our self recognizes, I'm not in control, I can't do it myself, I need a Savior that God saves us. So that's number one. Number two is that we have to have a different mind. We have to put aside pride and ambition and self-promotion and be humble like a child. Now, Jesus isn't saying be immature. The Bible talks again and again about maturing in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us uh, not to be foolish. And Ephesians 4 says, uh, don't be inconsistent. Matthew 11 says, don't be lacking in spiritual understanding. So the Bible's not arguing for us to stay in immaturity. Instead, it's talking about the mindset. Have an innocence. Have a spiritual teachability that, that desires the milk of the Word, that maintains a strong, dependent, hands-lifted, Lord, I need you kind of trust in the Lord that, that doesn't look anywhere else for its sufficiency, but only looks for Christ. And then as God leads, that we're not fighting His leadership, but that we're yielding to it. So we have to be converted. We have to have a different mind. Look at the third thing in verse 3. He says, our mindset has to be this way, for us to enter the kingdom. There, there's no equivocation. This is what's required. And what got the disciples in trouble is they're walking around, kind of strutting around, thinking, man, I am a shoe-in for this. Look at me. I'm walking with Jesus, and, and I'm prominent, and, and Jesus likes me, and people are looking up to me, and I'm better than you, and you're worse than me. And, and at this point, they're, they're kind of walking around with this assumption like, Man, we are good as gold. Jesus says, watch out for that. Watch out for that attitude. Hebrews 4.1, it's a great verse. It says, examine yourself in this way to make sure you're part of the beloved. In other words, we should live in fear. We should live in fear that even though we're promised to be part of the kingdom, that we still need to test ourselves to see if we're walking in the work of the Lord. And God does that work in our lives if we're not doing it. He, def he, he refines us and he works on challenging our faith. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Moses. He did it with Elijah. He did it with Peter. Listen, if he'll do that to them, he's certainly going to need to do it with me. God constantly wants to test us. He wants to see, do you have a healthy dose of fear of me? You know, we don't talk about, Tony, uh, Yako and I were talking about this before the service. Uh, we don't have, uh, I think, all the time, a healthy dose of fear of the Lord. Jesus has been repackaged by culture to be just kind of sensitive and soft and, and just kind of tolerating everything. And people's say, and he's just all about love. Uh, tell me if you've heard this before. Jesus was about love and tolerance. And, and yes, he was about love. And he was about drawing people to himself. But Jesus also was about fearing the Lord. 
He's not just some prophet. He's not just some guy that walked around Israel 2,000 years ago. He's the son of God in human flesh. He has the full power of God in him. And the Bible tells us you need to fear the Lord. Have we lost our fear of the Lord? I mean, seriously now, ask yourself that question. Even if you need to close your eyes and ponder it. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear sinning against Him? Do you fear disappointing Him? Do you fear not trusting in Him? Do you fear not yielding to Him? We've quoted it many times. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Tell me. Wisdom. It's how we discern what is right. And if we're not fearing the Lord, we'll have no understanding of that. So it's not only an awe and respect of His power and His authority, but it's a constant dread. Listen now, it's a constant dread of doing anything to offend Him. And pride and ambition fight against that. That's why the devil stokes them so much. Listen, if this wasn't an issue, why does the devil tempt us this way all the time? So what caused the angels to fall from heaven is they got proud and they got ambitious and they said, we don't need God, we'll be our own gods. The defining characteristic of a Christian's life really should be humility. It shows an understanding of our inadequacy and it shows gratitude for the grace of God through Christ and it shows evidence of being spirit-filled and it shows similarity to Christ. Humility. Christians should be humble. They should be broken. They should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it says, this is exactly what's right. I'm a failure, but Christ lifted me up and filled me with His Spirit. And now I have a responsibility to tell people about Him. So I have a different mindset. This is required. Fourth, look at it. We must desire becoming like children because it leads to being honored in heaven. We have to live with the constant thought of deferred benefit. We don't always get the benefit now. God blesses us and he helps us more than we can imagine. I've struggled all week with just kind of feeling sorry for myself sometimes. And the Lord convicted me of it when I was praying this morning. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Look how I've blessed you. Look at what I've done in your life. All the different ways I've blessed you. All the different ways I've helped you. But listen, the reward is not here, right? The, the, the reward is not here. The reward is in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not here on earth, because earth will always be a disappointment. The benefit is not now. The reward may not be now. You say, well, well, Paul, I need some reward now. Well, you know what? God will bless you. God will help you. Look at what he's done in your life. But, but if you're looking for the benefit now, you're looking the wrong way. The reward is going to be when we stand before the Lord and we look around at the millions of people whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ and have trusted Christ, and we stand before our Savior, and the Savior says, Welcome into heaven, good and faithful servant. I've redeemed you. And we stand in heaven with the redeemed, and we sing praise to the Lord. That's when we get the reward. Tomorrow, I may not get any reward for trusting in Christ. I may get persecuted. I may get opposed. I may get criticized. I may get attacked spiritually. That goes with the territory because the reward isn't now. It's then. And we have to be heavenly minded that way. So he says there's deferred benefit. Disciples, believers, it's about heaven's reward. Now, why is that important? Let's deal with the second part of the passage because this challenges us. 
But before we see how it impacts our relationships, we need to understand, though, what, what Jesus means about becoming like a child. And I think there are two applications here. I think there are two ways to look at this. One is overt and one is more subtle. When he talks about becoming like a child throughout the text, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, the obvious example that he's giving is people who are are new to the faith, who are younger in the faith, who are still learning and growing. Somebody who needs uh, greater maturation and and instruction and encouragement and, and discipling so that they'll become more mature. Someone who hasn't really matured but desires to. They need spiritually strong people around them to to hold them accountable and to to help develop them and to pray for them so they don't fall back. That's the main thrust of what he's talking about when he says if if you hurt somebody that's like that, you're really doing damage. But I believe there's a second part of what Jesus is saying. And I think he's talking about those who are mature in their faith. And are striving for the Lord in every way. Someone who is spiritually advancing and growing and maturing is willingly becoming like a child to walk with Christ. Now it seems odd that we would say, well, a mature believer needs to act like a child. But when you look at the characteristics of what Jesus is talking about, it makes sense. So he says, look back at verse 5. He says, if you receive someone like this in my name, you're really receiving me. But then in the same breath, he says, let me warn you. If you hinder or harm somebody spiritually when they're acting like a spiritual dependent child, someone who's humbled themselves before me, then there are significant spiritual ramifications. And that's why when you get into verses 6 to 9, what he's talking about seems unbelievably extreme. He's laying out some serious warnings. He's not mincing any words at all because he is saying, you do not want to be a stumbling block. Now the world's going to be a stumbling block. Jesus says that himself. Don't let it surprise you when the world opposes you and and tries to drag you down spiritually and tries to put sin as a temptation. That's not a shock. We shouldn't ever be surprised that that's the state of the world this morning. But he says, as believers... We not only have to guard against stumbling ourselves, we also have to be very cautious not to be the source of causing someone else to stumble. In other words, as I titled the message, we need to avoid being spiritual speed bumps. We don't want to hinder the speed of somebody's maturation. We don't want to cause somebody to to be uh, blocked or to be, uh, to be uh, veering off path because of what we're doing and what we're saying, what they see in our lives. We don't want to cause hardship. We don't want to prevent them from moving forward. And that's what Jesus is talking about as he gets into verses 5 to 9. How do we do that? How do we stand as a stumbling block to another person? Well, I think there are two primary ways that Jesus says we're at risk of being an offense. I want to encourage you to write these down if you're not already taking notes because we've got to constantly analyze this in terms of of how we uh, act and how we talk and how we live. So two primary ways in which Jesus says we're at risk of being an offense. The first is when we entice somebody to go back to their former life. 
Now, one of the most damaging ways that we do this is by participating in the former life. When somebody younger than us, that somebody's that we're discipling, that's young in the faith, that is growing, looks at us and, and, and looks at us as an example, and then they see us participating in what they've just been delivered from, what is spiritually uh, not pure or what is spiritually questionable, and when they look at us participating in this, they say to themselves, by participating in it, you're actually approving of it. You're saying this is permissible for a believer. Now, we can have, we, we can claim to have liberty, because I hear that argument a lot. Well, I have liberty to certain actions. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that having liberty doesn't mean that you have license to do whatever you want. Because we have a responsibility to each other, and we have a responsibility to our witness. And one of the most common arguments I hear, and this really struck me this week, one of the common defenses I hear Christian use is, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. Do you know that any person Jesus talked to was a sinner? We often think, well, Jesus hung out with, with the prostitutes, and he hung out with the tax collectors. Like, there's a special breed of sinner that, that has a certain profession that's far worse than me. Do you know I'm just as guilty of sin as any murderer on death row this morning? Do you know you're just as guilty of sin as any prostitute? We're all infected by sin. That's why we need a Savior. So it's a farce to say, well, Jesus hung out with the real dregs of society. You know what? I'm a drag of society, and so are you. Sorry to break it to you on a nice Sunday morning, but you are. You're a drag of society until you have Christ. Jesus hung out with sinners. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. But that does not mean that Jesus participated in their sin. He didn't condone it. He condemned it. He called people to repent and to live differently. See, there's been so much redefining of Jesus, as I said earlier, in terms of who he was and what he said. But, but that becomes kind of a, 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 a false security for us that we then can act however we want. Our job, listen now, our job as believers is not to draw people toward sin. Our job is to draw people toward holiness. So when we participate, when we take part, when we don't think about the growth of somebody else, when we're indifferent or callous, well, I can do this because I have liberty and you'll just have to deal with it. No, that's, that's the wrong way to think because we're enticing people back to their former life that they're trying to break free from. Second way we cause stumbling blocks is by causing grief to other believers that we're participating in what the world values and endorses. That we discourage another believer, whether they're young in the faith or older in the faith, we discourage another believer from taking a stand for Christ or by, or by withstanding opposition or, or by having unwavering faith that when they see us being careless and callous about our faith, that then start, that starts to damage them. And they look at our witness and they say, you're, you're harming the witness of Christ by how you're acting. We're warned in Scripture as believers, not as unbelievers, but as believers, we're warned, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He's freed us from bondage. We just celebrated that at the table. He's given us a new nature, and He's given us a new mind. 
but it grieves him. It causes him pain. It makes him sad. Whatever term you want to use for the word grief, it causes heartache in heaven when we go back and participate in our old life. Even when we show any interest in it. Why would we stand and sing, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He loved me and bought me with His redeeming blood. Why would, we, why would we sing that and praise the Lord and say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And I've got victory in Christ. I just celebrated at the communion table. And praise the Lord. And then go back and live a losing life. Why would we go back to what only brought us sin, death, and hell when we have victory in Jesus? You know, if participating in the world wasn't damaging, Christ would never talk about it. The devil would never tempt us on it. We'd never be taught from Scripture, deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow Christ. See, we have a huge, huge, huge responsibility for the spiritual condition of those around us. We have a huge responsibility this week for the unsaved people, the people who have not yet trusted Christ, the people who rejected Christ in our family, in our neighborhood, at our job, wherever we go. We have a huge responsibility to them to show them Jesus Christ, to be the embodiment of the life of Christ walking around every day, what we speak, how we act, how we think, how we interact, what we say, all of that needs to exemplify Christ. Those who are young in the faith around us, we have a parental responsibility as a fellow uh, believer in the body of Christ. We have a parental responsibility to build them up and to teach them the way to go and what it means to live like Christ. To people who are struggling, we have a huge responsibility to pray for them, encourage them, strengthen them, build them up, talk them out of walking back to their old life, and tell them the value of trusting in Christ. To people who are deeply mature, more mature than us, we have a responsibility to encourage and edify them that someone who is not as mature as them is walking faithfully with Christ. Every person in this room, you have a responsibility to. You can't say, well, I'm doing my own thing, Paul, and I'm so busy, and I'm just trying. No, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. If you're a disciple of Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ has a responsibility to each other and has a responsibility to the world. And Jesus says, don't, don't get careless now. Don't be unconcerned that, that what somebody else thinks and what's going on in their spiritual walk is not your business. It is your business. And don't be so arrogant to think that your desires are more important than theirs. And in case we don't think, let's, let's draw this conclusion, you're listening very well. In case we don't understand just how seriously the Lord views this responsibility, look at verses 5, 8, and 9. Because in verse 5, he says, If you cause someone to stumble who's become like a child, either they're spiritually young and growing or they're spiritually mature and humble, if you cause them to stumble, it is such an offense to the Lord that it would be better for you to be drowned in the sea than to cause them spiritual damage. Now that's not hyperbole. And, and just, just let it sink in for a minute. If you're causing another believer to stumble, it would be better for you to be drowned in the sea 
than to cause them spiritual damage. Jesus is saying, look, physical death is nothing compared to spiritual death. You don't want to face the judgment of the Lord because you caused somebody else to fall away from the Lord because of what you said or did. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says the same holds true for how we handle ourselves. We need to be so protective of our own spiritual health and maturation that if our hand or foot or eye is repeatedly causing us to stumble, we need to eliminate it as the source of offense. Now, here's the debate. Was Jesus being literal? Is he saying, well, my hand's a problem, so I need to go home and chop it off? We're not advocating that this morning, but I want you to understand just how seriously he is saying you need to cleanse yourself from sin. Sin will always trap us. Jesus says you have got to deal with it aggressively. You ever heard about an animal that's caught in a trap by their leg and instead of dying there in the trap, they'll gnaw off their limb and then run away? That's the essential concept of what he's talking about here. If you're caught in sin this morning, you need to aggressively, and I mean aggressively, deal with it. Some of you in this room, I don't know all of you, I don't know what's going on in your lives, I don't need to know, but some of you this morning are in consistent sin. Studies show that 50%, I'm just thinking of this, the Lord hopefully has given me this, studies show that 50% of church-going men are caught in pornography. So I would be foolish to think that there's not at least one man in this room this morning that is seriously caught in a pornography addiction. How are you going to deal with that? You think it's just going to get better? Well, I just won't look at it as much, and hopefully my wife won't find out. You know what? It may take you stopping internet service. It may take you going from a, a smartphone to an old flip phone in order to get rid of that. How aggressively are you dealing with it? Because it's not going away. The devil knows your tendencies, and he knows your behavior, and he's going to keep enticing you and keep enticing you and keep enticing you until he breaks you down. Well, okay, Paul, I get it. Yeah, I know. I need to. No, I'm telling. I mean, that's not me talking. It's Jesus Christ talking. Get rid of it. Deal with it right now. Christ died on the cross to deliver you from that. And you're going you're gonna, to, forgive me for saying it, you're going to mock him by saying, well, God, thanks for the forgiveness, but I want to keep doing my own thing. It doesn't work like that. Paul says in Romans 8, that we don't live by the flesh anymore. That leads to death. Jesus has caused us to live now in life. And we need to do everything pertaining to life and godliness. Listen, I'm appealing to you as your friend and your brother. If you don't aggressively deal with that sin, it is going to eat you alive. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to destroy your relationship with your kids. It's going to cost you your job. And you're going to hit rock bottom and say, what just happened? Deal aggressively with sin. The time is today. Once and for all, deal with it now. Stop tolerating it. Stop giving place to it. Stop coddling spiritual sin and damage to your life because it is killing you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And then he brings the final application. 
He says, now look at who you're impacting. Positively and negatively. To those who are new to the faith, who are younger and still growing and learning, we need to see them as spiritual children who need maturation and help and encouragement. Think about how you treat a child. Think about how you, you spend time with a child. You don't treat them like, like a coworker. You, you encourage them. You teach them. You get down on their level. You build them up. You help them when they fall. There, there's constant sensitivity to their growth. You certainly don't do things to intentionally damage them or to cause them to fall down. Or you, don't, you don't contribute to their weakness. You certainly wouldn't when a child's happy and running down the aisle and they're all excited. You don't put your foot out and trip them. Did you see the video uh, of the refugees uh, that are crossing, I think it was Hungary, and, and they're running, and a guy's running with his child, and the cameraman from one of the news organizations sticks out their foot. Did you see, who saw that video? Like five of you. Cameraman's there, a news reporter with, with a microphone, and she sees the refugees, and she sticks out her foot, and the man who's carrying like a three-year-old child falls into the dirt, and the child goes sprawling. She was fired on the spot. We would never do that to our children. If our children are running down the aisle and they're happy, we may say, listen, guys, don't run in church. It's a little loud. But we certainly wouldn't shove them into the pews and hurt them. And yet... This is what he's talking about here. When a child falls, what's your first reaction? You reach out to catch them. You want to lift them up. And when they fall, you run right over. It's okay. You're not that hurt. It's all right. Just stop crying. It's all right. You pick them up. You hug them. You hold on. It's going to be okay. Look, it's just a little bruise. You'll be fine. Do we do that with each other? Is that how we treat people who are younger in the faith? Or do we say, look, I got my liberty. You, you do whatever you want. Deal with it. And then, what would cause this? There are only two things. The only things that would cause us to do that are selfishness and lack of love. Selfishness that we want to do what we want to do. We can defend our rights, and we can say, look, this is, this is okay, this is permissible. Listen, unless Scripture absolutely condones it. It doesn't matter what's cultural or what we want to do or what we think will be relevant. Only what the Bible clearly and unequivocally advances and what is beneficial for our holiness and our witness is what is allowable. But we also have to understand that we're responsible for each other. And whether we like it or not, the Word of God and the body of Christ and our witness transcend what we want. So we need to build people up in their faith, and we need to build people up in their holiness, and we need to build people up in their witness, and we need to strengthen the unity of the church, and we need to do those things because Christ is honored in those, and we're called to those. And when somebody is more mature than us, we have a responsibility not just to assume they're fine. We have to continue to edify them and strengthen them and encourage them. Keep going, faithful servant of God. Keep going, faithful saint. Listen, the enemy at the end of our lives attacks. 
There are so many people that have walked with Christ for years who at the end of their life become discouraged and feel defeated and stop trusting in life the way that they should. So don't just assume that the person that's more mature in their faith than you is fine. Pray for them, encourage them, strengthen them, build them up, thank them for their faithfulness, and continue to walk faithfully so they'll be encouraged. This is what Jesus says. You want to be prominent in the kingdom? Be humble like a child. And listen, you have responsibility. To those that are younger in the faith than you, you have responsibility. To those who don't even know me, you have responsibility. To those who are growing and maturing, you have responsibility. To those who are more mature than you, you have a responsibility. Watch the way you walk, because it would be better for you to die than to damage somebody spiritually. That's a strong word on a beautiful September morning. But that's what Christ has called us to.